hunchback, usurper, murderer. These are just a few of the names appended to that of Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Richard III of England. His short two-year reign ended in the brutal and bloody Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, effectively ending the Plantagenet royal line, medieval royalty in England in general, the Wars of the Roses, and a long tradition of kings dying on the battlefield. Cut down from his horse, he was hacked to death by the forces rallying around his cousin Henry Tudor. His body was paraded through the streets of Leicester, slung over a horse on its way to Henry for him to see the face of his dead opponent and be assured of his right of accession as Henry VII. It's said the body was desecrated on the way, stabbed through the buttocks by a soldier lining the grisly parade route. He wasn't given a grand burial, but was commonly presumed to have been buried in a friary or potentially dumped in a nearby river, his coffin converted into a horse's drinking trough. Richard was, for more than half a millennia, the only English king without a tomb, his burial place lost to the sands of time and industrial progress. He might have even deserved it. Richard is supposed to have been a conniving and megalomaniacal ruler. Henry Tudor believed he was a usurper, having wrested control of the crown and throne of England from his brother, Edward IV's line of succession, which Richard later claimed was actually illegitimate. And he has stood accused of orchestrating the murders of his other elder brother, George, Duke of Clarence, several advisors to his late brother, King Edward IV, his own wife, Anne Neville, and most famously his nephews, Edward V and Richard of Shrewsbury, the young princes in the tower. Surely a man like this, even though he was a king of England, is not deserving of such accolades as a state burial, a tomb in a place of honor. And yet... When the remains of a body were discovered buried beneath a humble car park in the city of Leicester back in 2012, few people believed it could actually be that of the long-disgraced usurper king. DNA testing, however, later proved it was, in fact, the long-lost burial plot of King Richard III. In 2015, his body was reinterred in Leicester Cathedral, in a lavish ceremony attended by the Bishop of Leicester, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester, Countess of Wessex, and distant relation Benedict Cumberbatch, who later played his royal ancestor in the second cycle of the BBC TV movie The Hollow Crown. With the reinterment of his body in such a place of honour, a re-examination of the presumed history of this most infamous of English kings has taken place. Was Richard the evil usurping murderer that the Tudors and William Shakespeare himself would have us believe? Or was he, as Ricardians insist, a victim of smear campaigns and propaganda at the hands of the victors of England's bloodiest dynastic battle? That's the question we'll be tackling today. Will the real Richard III please stand up? Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And... We are the Bix. Yes. And this is our episode today, discussing the true facts. 
As far as we as far as we understand them, of the life and death and history of Richard III. Yes, and in particular how it ties back to Shakespeare. And just to get out of the way, Lindsay's getting over cold, so you may hear some some like coughing in the background as yeah. I'm talking occasionally. Yeah. Uh, we'll try and uh, clear that out as much as we can. But uh, as I yeah. am trying to do, yeah, exactly. clear that out. Exactly. Generally speaking, uh, but yeah, we're we're looking specifically at Richard III, but specifically, specifically, specifically times two, specifically squared. Yes, exactly. Uh, on how it relates back to the Shakespeare character, yes. because. Uh, of all the historical figures that that Shakespeare really took a hold of, uh, you can't really name one who he had more of an influence over how history regarded that person as a human being than Richard III. That was a very awkward sentence. That was a that very said. awkward sentence, but I got around to the point. You, you did, you did. Um, but it is true that that Shakespeare's portrayal of Richard III is is kind of cemented his Richard III's legacy mm-hmm. in the popular culture and the common imagination. So. Um, the the recent very recent you know seven years ago discovery of of his actual uh his body um really did reignite kind of uh that re-examination that i mentioned in my my opening essay mm-hmm. um because it is it is so fascinating to look at at uh how history has regarded a, an actual historical figure and how popular culture has affected our our interpretation of it and why that's happened so that's that's kind of where we're going to be coming from this episode um there are so many different myths that have been brought up around the um around the the story of richard the third um and i've done a little bit more research into this because it's something that interested me we were in england um a short time after the discovery and at the british museum they had a nice big um display of it around the time that it was starting to come out that they the the dna testing was finalized and all that stuff so Mm -hmm. um and i remember spending like a solid hour just looking through these galleries and and uh and aiden was nowhere in sight i don't know where you were when we were but. that day but um <laughs> but i remember coming back from that and just thinking like oh my god this is like feeling like this was a very pivotal moment in history that that this was coming um the the truth was going to come out maybe mm-hmm. uh so so yeah i i think the way we're going to structure this episode is with aiden playing the role the shakespearean role of the fool um asking the hard. questions uh not the fool i'm i'm just joking but asking the questions and i will play the the uh learned i don't know scholar i guess <laughs> you, you, learned scholar you are you sure. are you are more in depth on this stuff sure. i'll give you that so but we have we have five commonly held mm-hmm. myths um i've kind of arranged them in uh sort of uh chronological order i suppose so that we can we can kind of tackle them as they as they come up in the life of of Richard the Third, so Aiden, what is the first myth? Myth number one: He was a hunchbacked monster. Was- Lindsay, what is the reality? <laughs> what is what is the truth behind myth number one? Well, or was there any truth? Yeah. So, so Richard the uh, Third, because of the portrayal of of Richard the Third in Shakespeare's play, and the way Richard he's described III. and so forth, yeah, and on the Henrys, he was described yes, the same exactly, way. In the Henrys exactly, as well. he was described as having a hunchback, um, one leg shorter than the other, a shriveled little arm, mm-hmm. and I mean, you have to look at this 
uh, from the viewpoint of the kind of morality police of the time where this can this it goes up to the Victorians and the early 20th mm-hmm. century even where and I suppose even to this day that people with disabilities, people who are quote unquote malformed are seen as having some kind of moral rod at the very center of their being. So it's very convenient to put your villain uh, in the body of a of a malformed deviant, right? So you have characters like even as as late as um, what's that Dan Brown? Oh, uh, the Da Vinci yeah, Code. Yeah, the Da Vinci Code. Right? Yeah, where you have the the priest or the the monk who's yeah, like who's an albino, bino, right? Yes. Like like that's so He's malformed, yeah, exactly, exactly yeah. right? He's evil. Yeah. Um, so it's it's something that still persists to this day in our society. But but for Richard the Third, he's described, and from the very beginning, from the very opening, his opening monologue. Um, he describes himself as being malformed mm-hmm. and, and or ill-formed, I think is is the word he used. Um, and there's there is some truth to this. The body that was that was uncovered in the Leicester car park did have evidence of fairly severe scoliosis, mm-hmm. um, which is not a would hunchback. Not, yeah, would not have resulted in a hunchback. But well, no, but I mean, a hunchback is not a medical term. As yeah. the the yeah. the people who forensic pathologists and and uh, osteologists who looked at the the remains are very clear to point out. Um, hunchback is not a medical term it's something that we ascribe to somebody who has a malformed back so maybe somebody with scoliosis in 1460 or whatever would have been seen as as being a hunchback but he would have had curvature of the spine Mm -hmm. which would have probably shifted a shoulder um up or down depending on how you're looking at him uh it wouldn't probably wouldn't have been noticeable under his clothing Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have had a shriveled arm yeah. or or a shortened well, leg. They found the rest of his body, and he didn't. Yes, have any he of didn't. That. Yeah. He 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 was fairly uh, symmetrical, I guess, mm-hmm. aside from this curvature of the spine, which which would have um, misshapen his chest cavity, his chest wall. So one side of his chest would have been slightly larger, um, or 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 twisted in some way, yeah. and one shoulder would have been higher. But it would have been much more pronounced um, when he was not wearing clothes. Yeah. Under armor, under clothing, you wouldn't have noticed the difference. But it is said that he he was quite dainty, and the the bones bear this out that mm-hmm. he had um, kind of feminine, quote unquote, feminine bone structure, mm-hmm. which was similar to that of his father. Apparently, Richard yeah. Duke of York uh, was also yeah, quite a dainty man. Of each other, as yeah, well. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, this does not um, rule out. The bones at the time before they did the DNA test, DNA testing, they were looking at these bones and they said, well, there are certain things on here that suggest a more feminine figure. The pelvis as well was kind of um, feminized or feminine in some way. But uh, but it fits with the accounts at the time. There were records of. Richard being called a good fighter in spite of having a dainty form. Um, So so the bones themselves show this that he had this curvature of the spine as well as having kind of um dainty figure or yeah. dainty yeah just a structure. slighter man yeah. Yeah. yeah uh so not deformed not a monster but that's also a subjective thing well, exactly. that the and people at the time yes. might have seen and it's very easy to look back 
after uh, you know Henry Tudor has come to the throne, and yeah. you're painting you're looking the story. For, yeah, you're, yeah, you're telling the story. You're looking for something to otherize the the bad guys. You yeah, know, to make them bad. And yeah, that is a common trope. So yeah, it a makes curved sense. spine so, and small oh, yeah. arms. Yeah, you know, clearly the guy must have been some kind of deviant, right? <laughs> uh, but that's just simply not borne out by the facts and the evidence that's been well, presented. Well then, look at you proving the proving the, the haters wrong. Yes. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> You and all those thousands of pathologists and other people who have worked on this. Well, absolutely. Uh, Okay, our second myth. Myth number two. He was a power-hungry usurper. Usurper? Usurper. 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 Wow, you're you're really good. you're gonna double gonna down stick, on this. I'm gonna stick with it. You're I'm sticking, sticking with, with it. Uh, yes. Yeah, so this this is the the myth that's grown up around his eventual uh, extension to the throne, um, that he was power hungry from the start, that he was born with this malice in his heart because Mm -hmm. he was malformed and so was jealous of his attractive Edward IV, younger, older brother, Edward IV, who was, you know, the the hottest Mick Hotterson Mm -hmm. to ever sit on the throne of England. Um, that he orchestrated both Edward's downfall and his elder brother George's downfall so that he would be the natural... Uh, next in line for the throne and then wiped out any people who stood in the way so all of the advisors the dukes and lords who stood between him and the crown and his own nephews also that he murdered his wife in order to marry his niece there there were all of these things that cropped up around him that all kind of we'll we'll get to in a bit but the the usurper part is what's really interesting because um Edward IV died of natural causes. He got sick during a on a boat or something, didn't he? He was out in yeah, on a hunt or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I don't know, but it was it was a natural thing. He he probably caught a cold and got sick and died yeah, or something like that. He may have had like venereal that, right? diseases too because he was sleeping around so much and stuff too. They they if I remember correctly, they weren't yeah. sure, but yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so so he he. Richard III probably didn't give him a cold or venereal disease in order to <laughs> yeah. cause his death. So he died of, of natural yeah. causes. And, and up until the point of his death, Richard III was a very loyal supporter of yeah. Edward's claim to the throne. Which, remember, Edward usurped the throne, yes, the crown, him. from Henry VI, who yeah. was the rightful heir. Yeah. Um, and there was all that discussion about who was descended from mm-hmm. whom yes, with Edward yeah. the the third. Yes, right and john origin, of gaunt yes, and all of that all so things. so edward the fourth had a kind of a shaky claim to the throne and even shakier claim as we'll get to as well um because of rumors of his illegitimacy mm-hmm. richard the third richard duke of gloucester was a very supportive younger brother and went to went to the mattresses completely for his older brother yeah, fought with him in all the big battles absolutely stuff, yeah. even when he was um Exiled when the yes, middle when he, brother George yes. turned on Edward, yeah. sided with Warwick and Henry the Sixth, and brought Henry the Sixth back to power in 1470 for that brief Period, one yeah. year or nine months or whatever that he was in power yeah. before he died. Um, so it was George actually who was quite yeah he was uh, the power hungry. Well, yes, he was maybe the not power hungry, but but well, followed the the yeah, power I exactly. think to yeah. where it should have where where he thought it should be. Yeah. Um, Richard was not that at all, and and um, so so that it, that kind of rules out his involvement in Edward's death. He was a very loyal, loving brother. Where it concerns George, Duke of Clarence, um, 
he he did side with Edward or sorry side with Henry against Edward. Yeah. Uh, when Edward took power back. Yeah, he he eventually got back into his good graces yeah. and was crowned. I think he was named the Earl of Warwick. At some point. At some yeah, point. Yeah. But his wife died and he kind of went a little mad and accused one of her ladies in waiting of murdering her. Yeah. And and he didn't really let that go. And so he ended up um, kind of rebelling. Yeah. Not kind of. He did he, he definitely rebelled, rebelled again yeah. against Edward IV in, in like 1477, I yeah. think. And was later in early 1478 executed by Edward IV. Yeah. Richard III had nothing to do with this. No. He was... Um, completely supportive, I think, of Edward IV's um, decisions. decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and we talked about this before, how mm-hmm. Edward had a history of giving people second chances. He was exactly. a fairly forgiving king. Um, and his brother George being the prominent example, you know, yeah. fool me twice, shame on me. And well, he, yeah, he exactly. wasn't going to allow a third time. So No, but he did. He so did. It really, it was, I'm just saying it's part of Edward's MO. Yes, you know, it is. His Absolutely. modus operandi, and it was not... Uh, you know, it wasn't Richard inter- interceding on No, it, it had nothing to do with it. Although the play does present mm-hmm. Richard as being kind of instrumental in orchestrating. There's talk yeah. of witches and yeah. prophecies that that come into play around the letter G and <laughs> and stuff related yeah. to the the downfall of Edward the Fourth. So so that's where George ends up getting lumped in with Richard and, and Richard's story gets tied up with George's, but the historical evidence of of George yeah. Duke of Clarence being executed in a butt of Malmsey um, was not has nothing to do with Richard the yeah. Third. Richard's later turning around and saying that Edward was illegitimate is not something that is um, out of well, not not to say it's out of character or not out of character, but it it falls in line with a popular theory or a popular. Um, rumor that was yeah, going around was going at around. the time yeah. at the time that that edward the fourth was illegitimate he didn't look anything like his father he was very tall and he was actually like over six feet tall i think yeah. very handsome whereas richard duke of york his his father was not yeah. uh, looked a lot more like richard the third yeah. um and and there was some evidence that has been brought up in recent years about the fact that Richard Duke of York wasn't even present during the time when Edward the Fourth would have been conceived. Yeah. He was off fighting the Hundred Years' War against France. So um, so this rumor, and it was even substantiated partly by their mother, who said that Edward the Fourth was illegitimate, yeah. and and the the lavish baptismal and christening ceremonies. Um, for George, the second son, far outshone those of his elder brother, which doesn't make a lot of sense no. when you look at things from a line of succession point of view, especially yeah. where it concerns someone who is later going to be king. Yeah. That just doesn't happen. Yeah. So um, so this is not something that Richard III made up. It was something that he substantiated. Probably a lot of historians believed now in order to wrest control away from Edward IV's wife's family. Yeah. Those the upstart Woodvilles yeah. who Ugh. just worm their them. way into the into the uh, the monarchy, essentially. Yeah, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And then their their children, Edward the who later became Edward V yeah. and Richard um uh, Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury, Richard of Shrewsbury. All right. Uh, that they were Woodvilles. They yeah. were Woodvilles, and they would have they would have a direct descendant sitting on the throne. Richard the Third probably stepped in at some point in order to stop that. That's the theory that a lot of sympathetic, yeah, uh, historians go with today. Well, and it, and it's worth mentioning that uh, this is this is kind of backed up by the fact that um, 
a lot of the nobles did not like the Woodlands. Oh, no. You know, this is why Richard was not the most popular king. Um, at the time, but he didn't have, uh, he didn't face a civil war, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it was kind of the external force of the Tudors coming in and, and help with the French mm-hmm. and, and some dissatisfied nobles, mm-hmm. but it's not like he reigned for how long, eight years or something Who, like Richard that? the Third? Richard III. Two years. It was only two years? Only two years. Oh, I thought it was longer than that. No. Okay. Then disregard that. <laughs> but, but still, I mean, yeah. your point is well made and we'll get to that a little bit about his popularity, but he wasn't doing anything that was um, considered heretical in any sort of way his ascension to the throne was approved by parliament Mm -hmm. like this was all legal in a in a sense so and and nobody liked the woodvilles and i think if you were to look at it from that perspective richard um was doing what he thought was in the best interests of the throne and keeping it away from the woodvilles was central to that so it's not that he was a usurper of the rightful king in his mind he was a usurper or he was wresting control away from usurpers yeah. and and putting it back in in where it actually in plantagenet hands yes exactly yeah. Lindsay, myth number three richard the third was a murderer ah oh, yes <sighs> that he was a that he was a dastardly murderer um that he had again like i mentioned several advisors to edward the fourth uh, killed in the wake of his ascension, uh, Edward IV's death and his ascension mm-hmm. to the throne, so around 1483, um, including Earl Rivers, Richard Grey, Thomas Vaughan, Lord Hastings, the Duke of Buckingham, and oh, then Buckingham. finally his two nephews. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those. Some of those. So, so let's talk about this a little bit. So so the five executions that were carried out, Rivers, Grey, Vaughan, Hastings, and Buckingham, um, three of those Rivers, Grey, and Vaughn were carried out by the Duke of Northumberland, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then the last two, Lord Hastings and the Duke of Buckingham, were carried out by under Richard III's yeah. orders. Executions are not murders. Mm-hmm. They are the end result of a judicial process that... Okay, so Aiden's, <laughs> Aiden's hemming and hawing here, but let me finish. Okay. There, There is ostensibly a judicial process around this whereby somebody is found guilty and then is a, a sentence is carried out. Um, so by definition, an execution is not an extrajudicial thing. Now, in some cases, I think... Um, uh, was it Rivers? Vaughn, I don't remember. There were there were some instances where Richard had people removed from rooms. There was there was one very 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 important instance where he like lulled him into a sense of security, left the room, comes back in, angrier than a hornet, and has the guy removed from the room and executed in the tower green like immediately. So there was no yeah. no trial, but it was later held up in some way as <laughs> as being uh, a, a yeah, judicial process. So. Lynn. Okay, so so executions by definition are not extrajudicial judicial killings. Other sure, kings, sure. other kings, including Henry the Eighth and well, yeah, um, they all did it. Mary the First, yeah. uh, Elizabeth the First, they all executed people. They're not called murderers for it. So fair so enough, it's not fair to look at Richard the Third and say he definitely murdered all these people when they were executions that other kings and queens would have been lauded for. I would have. I would just say the opposite that those those yes. monarchs should all be called murderers. But yes. that's okay. Yes, <laughs> but but in in the historical sense, we're we're talking about this from uh, not a, a social justice sense. We're talking about it from a historical <laughs> yes. sense, and historians 
Christians tend to um, look at executions committed by kings as being rightful. Yeah. And so, but in Richard III's case, they're considered murders. And why is that? That's what I want to get at because mm. they're not strictly speaking out of the ordinary in in the grand scheme of other executions committed by or or uh done by regal figures in yes. the english history that's true so um so i find that a little hard to swallow even if i don't approve of execution as a form of <laughs> justice friends, yeah. at all um the princes in the tower, however, are an interesting kind of yeah. subset. There is no proof that they died, for starters. There's a giant mystery around these these two yeah. figures because there is no proof that they were actually murdered at all. They were just disappeared. When people disappear, we presume that they were murdered. Yeah. There's, Especially there's, someone as important as exactly. the future king. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very likely that they were killed. Mm-hmm. And if they were killed, it's very, very likely that Richard III was behind it. Yes. For reasons. <laughs> Just reasons. <laughs> well, yeah. As you can presume. So it's possible that he was guilty of, of at the very least, he was guilty of their imprisonment. Yeah. Because he did imprison them um, at first as Lord Protector. But once he he went to the throne, came to the throne as Richard III, certainly the elder Edward V would have um, would have understood that as as a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. His um, no, it was Hastings. Hastings was the one who was ripped from the room and executed. Okay. Rivers was the one who was the protector, Edward V's protector, who um, he liked very much, knowing that his his quote unquote uncle <laughs> uncle Rivers. Um, had been executed probably would have sent him into a, a bit yeah. of fear himself. So I'm sure that this this prince Edward would have and King Edward V would have known that his days were numbered, mm-hmm. um, and that he was effectively prisoner of his uncle Richard. So, so that's not really uh, a point of contention. I think Richard acting in his mind out of um, a sense of duty towards his brother and his nephews to protect them from other pretenders to the throne. But it's been said that he got caught up, Richard got caught up in in events that were playing out and, and fate kind of delivered him to this point where he had to do something about these nephews and had mm-hmm. to kill them. It's a very sympathetic way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. However you slice it, it's likely that he was involved with their disappearance. And certainly... Um, the the bones that were found in the 17th century yeah. under the stairs in the White Tower, they fit the description, they fit the time frame, mm-hmm. um, the age of the princes. So it's possible those are the the bones of of the little princes themselves. It's never been proven. They haven't been DNA tested. They haven't been tested at all since I think the 1930s. Yeah. There were other bones that have been found in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle, near the crypt where Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville were Mm -hmm. buried. Uh, They were presumed to be the... They were presumed to be the bodies of George and Mary, I think two children who predeceased Edward IV. Yes, yeah. But other coffins found elsewhere in St. George's Chapel or elsewhere had their names on them. So these caskets had bones in them that have been unidentified. But up until the point that we're recording this podcast, Elizabeth II has not, Queen Elizabeth II has not granted permission for these bones to be tested. Um, Because they're royal bones, they need the assent of the 
the current monarch yeah. to to do any testing. So so again, there's there's been no testing done for the last 80 years, 90 years on any bones related to the princes. We have no idea if they are the bones belonging to the princes. If they are, it doesn't necessarily prove how they died. It just proved that they did die. And if they did die at the age that that we think they died at, Richard III is very likely to be the yeah. one who, if not murdered them himself, ordered their murders. Yes. And, and why would he do that? Because he can become king afterwards. Exactly. He removes the, that last barrier to the throne. Yes. And um, there is there is the uh, possibly apocryphal confession of... Is apocryphal the right word? Probably not. Uh, there is the confession of a... A uh, man who was in the—I forget his name. Perhaps you remember it, Lindsay. Uh, who I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just wrapped right now <laughs> listening to this. There was a confession. Yeah, there was a confession from a guy I think on his deathbed who said that he murdered the the boys and huh. the. Yeah, you don't remember that? No, I don't remember that at yeah. all. Yeah, I don't can't remember his name now, but he was he worked in the tower. He okay. was like a guard or something like that, and uh, I think on his deathbed or shortly after Henry the Seventh rain started he he confessed that oh. he murdered the the boys Ed- edward the seventh no richard sorry henry, henry the seventh yes i was gonna say yes. edward the seventh is quite a bit later. later he lived a long he time he lived a very too. long time several mm-hmm. centuries in fact he was a vampire <laughs> no wonder he's killing boys <laughs> um the last charge of murder that was levied against richard was um that of his wife um and neville mm-hmm. who died about five months before he did and a lot of people presume that she died as a result of poisoning, um, that Richard poisoned her in order to marry Edward IV's daughter, mm-hmm. who would then cement his claim to the throne even further. Um, historically, there's no evidence for this either. His wife likely died of natural causes. Maybe she was poisoned. Nobody, I, I don't think anybody can prove that without, yeah, at this point, with any, yeah. any certainty. But what can be proved is that he did um, attempt to marry his daughter off to, or sorry, marry his niece off to the Portuguese king, future King Manuel I. Mm. Uh, so he was not interested in marrying her himself. In fact, he sent her out of the country and was trying to marry her off to somebody else. Eventually... Correct me if I'm wrong. She married Henry the Seventh, right? Yeah, yeah. So that obviously didn't happen, but but her involvement in that I think is heightened by the fact that she later became queen under, like she was Henry the Seventh's queen, yeah. um, and cemented the Tudor line yeah. going forward. Yeah. Uh, so the Woodvilles did eventually make their yes, way yes. into the royal bloodline, yes. which is interesting enough. And and this is my chance. I, I told you I was going to mention this. Yeah. Uh, it's also the end of the Plantagenet line. Yes. Uh, we think of it as an unbroken line from here on down. But if Edward IV was not legitimate, yeah. uh, his father was not a Plantagenet, then uh, neither then neither is his daughter. So the the legitimacy of the uh, Yorkist Plantagenet claim line ends here. Yes. Um, and on the other side, uh, Henry the Seventh, uh, Henry Tudor was uh, not a Plantagenet. not a Plantagenet at all. His mother was Henry the Fifth's wife. Yes. Uh, or grandmother was it grandmother? Yes. And she married a, 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 a Welsh minor noble. Yeah. Owen something. Owen Tudor. Owen Tudor. Yeah. Yeah. So. Literally, the the thing that was supposed to bind the royal families of England back together has nothing to do. No, totally created a, a brand new family line, which has led to this day. Yeah. Everybody traces their descendants back to Henry the Seventh and the Tudors, yeah. um, which means that there are 
and this is something that that um, Tony Robinson famously in in that documentary that you yes. love uh, found yes. the actual yeah. claimant the 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 actual legitimate. Heir to the heir throne. to the throne in Australia somewhere yeah, yeah. Some because guys. they they're from some unbroken de- descendants from yeah, yeah. Uh, which is just really funny when you think about the yeah. the Windsors don't actually belong on the throne it's some Aussie <laughs> well, backpacker I mean, be backwoods fa- <laughs> yeah although to be backwoods. fair it's it's uh, you know they everybody was kind of interbreeding back then of anyway. course so I'm sure there was some Plantagenet blood if sure. there was such a thing sure uh, somewhere in that line but yeah it's just it, it is kind of funny to talk about yeah. total side tangent yeah. but I love it. Um, so anyway, that's, that kind of takes care of the, the murder charges. I think there are a lot of things you could say about Richard III, um, related to the, especially the, the disappearance of his nephews, mm-hmm. but, but calling him a murderer and laying all these, these charges against him for the, the executions and especially around his wife and his niece, it's a little bit hard to swallow. And I think it comes up because it makes the story a little bit more interesting for people like Shakespeare to uh, yeah. to, to make it more intriguing, yeah. to make him an arch villain. It right? definitely works. Which brings us to myth number three. Nope, four. Were we on number four? I think we're on number four. We're on number four already. Myth number four. He was widely hated by his subjects. Yeah, Lindsay, what's the truth? Well, the the story goes that he was he was an absolute tyrant, and that he not only usurped the throne and the crown from rightful heirs, but that he was just just a horrible person on the throne to everybody in England. Not true. Mm-hmm. He was he wasn't beloved by everybody, but very few kings and queens are beloved by everybody. Every mm-hmm. one of their subjects. Um, in in the context of the time, he was quite popular. Actually, he he, especially in the north, he was defender of the north, very much like Jon Snow. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, did you like that? You yeah, might made a good. game with Jon Snow. Um, <laughs> you, you know, as as uh, you know, the York lands were defended by him, and he he still has quite uh, quite a hold um, in the north mm-hmm. to this day. Um, people people have never really turned against him the way they did in the popular imagination elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from that, I mean, his loyalty to his brother made him popular, and I think people saw him as, as a natural successor to his brother. Um, as I said earlier, his ascension was, um, was legitimized by parliament, mm-hmm. so there was no grand... Uh, rebellion from most of the lords and and other nobles nobility of the time and when he was in the the two years that he was king he did a lot of things for foreign trade he you know england was quite prosperous at the time Mm -hmm. um he helped grow the print industry Mm. in england which is something that you know you wouldn't do if you were uh, yeah, a tyrant who, tyrant who, who wanted to withhold to things. Yeah, anything, yeah. yeah. Um, he, I think he translated a bunch of laws into English to make them mm. more accessible, accessible to the people as well. Um, and yeah, he, he just, he just, it doesn't hold water that he was this tyrant. There were certainly people who rebelled and people who didn't think he should have been on the throne, but it was no more or less than any other king at the time, especially during the Wars of the Roses when there was yeah. all kinds of fighting going yeah. on anyway. The two years he was on the throne were relatively peaceful, relatively prosperous. Mm-hmm. So there just isn't any truth, I think, to the fact that he was widely hated and unpopular um, with the subjects, with the English people at the time. All right, Lindsay, myth number five. 
his body was exhumed and thrown into a river. <laughs> we know that one's not true. We know that's not true um, because of the, the discovery in 2012 of the body in the car park in Leicester. But for a long time, it was presumed that about 50 years after his death, the body was dug up from the friary where he was buried and tossed into the river sore um, outside... Uh, in Leicester there was a plaque put up in the 1800s on the bridge where the body was thrown over there were bones discovered in the river so for a long time people just assumed that this was and I think partly because there was no tomb for this king Mm -hmm. there was a desire to have a final resting place quote-unquote for this one king who never had never had that but with the discovery of this body uh, it kind of blew the doors off of this this theory entirely. And it's funny because like documentaries that I've watched up until, you know, the mid 2000s still persisted with this theory that he mm-hmm. was thrown into the river. So it really does rewrite the narrative about Richard's burial. He was given a burial in um, a Franciscan friary, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and during the Reformation, a lot of those friaries were t- torn down or destroyed. So the exact location was never quite found. But I think it was a the car park that eventually covered the land that was part of that friary. Mm-hmm. It, was it a Salvation Army or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I don't that? remember now. Um, they kind of knew where it could be. They knew where the, the crypts and the burial plots would be. In 2012, when they, the archaeological dig happened, it was the very first trench they dug that yeah. they found the, these bones um, beneath a, a car parking stall that had an R on it, which is yeah. really funny. Just an R That's for great. reserved, yeah, I think. Yeah. But but still, it was quite um, fitting, I think, that, that they did all this research and there were... Um, Ricardians on the archaeological dig team and and people who belong to the society, the Richard III societies and whatnot, who mm-hmm. who were very invested in in dismissing or no, um, uh, what's the word? Debunking. Pr- yeah. Debunking a lot of these myths surrounding Richard III. So so for them to hit pay dirt literally on the first trench very early on in the dig was quite impressive. And to, I think to find that, that the bones had deformities Mm -hmm. was a blow to a lot of them who wanted to believe that he was unfairly maligned by those who came after him um but yeah history just exaggerated the yeah as you would expect with with a uh, a shaky tudor claim to the throne henry the seventh didn't have the greatest claim to the throne Mm -hmm. and uh and had to build a legacy which his son and later his uh granddaughter um, really cemented in the popular imagination with things like the Tudor Rose, which was the unification of mm-hmm. England and the creation of England, and then Shakespeare, who really mythologized these stories. Uh, all of that kind of started with Henry the Seventh, and you had to start somewhere. So yeah, like there there are historical there's a historical basis for that, but it was exaggerated, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, What's interesting about the discovery of the body, the thing that always fascinated me was that they actually proved it through DNA testing. It was mm-hmm. mitochondrial DNA testing because Richard III died without any living heirs. So there are no living descendants, direct descendants of Richard III. But his sister, Margaret, had children and now has descendants living today, um, one of whom was tested. His, his mother was a journalist i think they lived in ottawa or something mm-hmm. they lived in canada yeah, they're yeah. canadians um 
she had died, but her son, her children obviously carry that same mitochondrial DNA because the mitochondrial DNA is passed on from uh, in the, the female line. Yeah. So they, this is an unbroken female line going back to Margaret, Margaret. of York. Yeah. The son of this journalist, Michael Ibsen, lives in London. He's a woodworker. Yeah. And his DNA was compared to DNA samples taken from the bones, and they were found to be a very close familial match. Yeah. Like, without a shadow of a doubt, these two are related. Yeah. So it proved that the body in the car park was the king, Richard III, that everybody yeah. presumed was was dead and gone. And then the the most fascinating part of that whole documentary uh, series that they devoted to this one, I think it was Channel 4, I think, who did it in the UK, uh, was when they recreated his face. They did yes. the facial reconstruction based on the, the skull that they found. And it looks almost identical to all it the does. portraits. It really Especially does. the portrait of, of uh, Richard. You know, he's got the kind of stern look and the, the very... Uh, royalish well yeah like the square face. jaw the the bit of a, a pointed jaw yeah. but that was something else that that came up um there are a lot of uh there's a lot of debate about how much those portraits the official portraits were mm-hmm. altered yeah. and um there's a, a an art historian or a historian her name actually is tudor tudor oh, really? jones or tudor something i can't remember her name but i just remember part of it is tudor and she's actually proven that in some of these that you can actually see where his eyes were narrowed in the paintings and, and mm. there was a hunchback that was added on after the fact. His fingers mm. were tapered to make them look claw-like. Yeah. They really did a number on his yeah. legacy after the fact. The Tudors did. Yeah. In order to paint him as this evil monster. When when in reality, he probably wasn't much more than an average king. Mm. And had things gone differently, we probably wouldn't think much more of him than we do Henry Seventh. Yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest question surrounding all of this is why? Why are these things being done? We kind of answered it already. The propaganda aspect is really the most the most powerful thing. Yeah. It, it's something that happens today. You have um, propaganda news networks that that crop up during dictatorships that mm-hmm. um, that put out the official party line the official government stance and that's what the Tudors had and in Shakespeare they had it on such a grand scale that it's lasted for the last 400 years Shakespeare might have also had another ulterior motive something that I discovered I didn't discover it I original Shakespeare yes totally in my room in Edmonton (laughs) Alberta Canada um uh one of his patrons was a descendant of somebody who, at the Battle of Bosworth Field, switched allegiance from Richard to Henry. Oh, yes. A Stuart, maybe? I don't remember the name. But um, he, was a, he was a direct patron of Shakespeare. So mm. not only was it in Shakespeare's best interest to paint the Tudors in the best light and the usurper King Richard in the worst light, he also, because of the queen, because of the patronage of the queen in the royal court, um, he also had this this financial patron in the form of um, a descendant of somebody who was a supporter of, oh, of Henry the Seventh as well. Hmm. So um, these are all things that that influence the way that I look at Richard the Third mm-hmm. now. I used to read Richard the Third, and you know, you buy into that that myth of him as this oh yeah monster tyrant. Well, and, and, and Shakespeare does such a great job of it exactly. too, right? That that's the other thing is you, that you know, reading the play, you're like, yeah, this is a great villain. You know, you read that. I I've just been reading. I, I finished Act One, mm-hmm. um, in in our rereading of the play. I haven't read it since uh, university, yeah. but it struck me again how 
completely engaging from the very first line now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of york and then he goes into all of this you know then switch when he starts talking about how he can't celebrate with with everybody else um it's 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 so captivating he is such a perfect villain um and i think that that is a testament to shakespeare's writing ability but also the power of the propaganda that was already well established Mm -hmm. at this time that he was able to take a character that scarcely 150 years before was just an average guy really Mm -hmm. um and turn him into like one of these most arch villains of arch villains in in the history of the english language um that's the power of language the power of propaganda i just think that's that's tremendously fascinating why some are born great some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrown upon them so in this week's marriage counseling we have a debate topic focused on the historical richard iii yeah uh our question for each other Mm -hmm. do you believe do you think do you feel in your heart of hearts that the historical richard iii deserves to be rehabilitated does his image deserve to be rehabilitated does he deserve this re-examination that we've put him through i'm going on the yay side i do believe yes. that richard the third deserves aiden is taking the contrary position yes uh that as, no as <laughs> <laughs> well this is the point of this, this feature that we have going on um I'll go first? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that in light of all the evidence that we have, it's it's necessary that we reexamine the historical record, and the, especially as it relates to how literature has affected the historical record. Um, as much as I love Shakespeare and as much as I love literature and I love uh, the influence that literature has on our society, I think at some point we have to step back and re-examine um, what is fake news and what is not. I can't believe I've used the term <laughs> fake news, the phrase fake news on this podcast, but, oh, um, but it's true. In this case, propaganda has taken the place of truth and we do that with Fox News. We do that with any kind of state-run television that mm. that uh, perpetuates myths and perpetuates lies in order to um, get a, a particular aim, a political or a, a social aim um, or, or goal across in the population. So um, there's no difference when it's a 400-year-old propaganda piece, a hit piece on somebody who we've later discovered maybe isn't deserving of that. So I think... From a this this is maybe taking a a sympathetic modern perspective on propaganda and and the rehabilitation of of figures uh, in light of modern you know what's what's going on in our modern society today maybe I'm ultra sensitive to it <laughs> but I do think that that Richard the Third maybe he wasn't the greatest guy in the whole world but he deserves to have the truth about him laid bare. And if the truth exonerates him from the murders of certain people or the the terrible things, the monstrous deformities that he was supposed to have, I think we owe it to history. We owe it not to him, not to him as a person or him as a king. I, I'm not saying that, but but the truth needs to prevail. And that that is coming out in light now with, with all these new discoveries. So I'm all for it. 
Those are all very fine points, Lindsay. Very reasonable. Very thought, well thought out. Thank and, you. We and can end here. We'll just go on to... Oh, you have more to say? Yes, I have slightly more okay. to say. Is th- That's fine. That's fine. However, I feel like history needs some villains. And I feel like English history in particular, uh, there is a certain prettiness to the, the conventional story around Richard III and the lead into Henry VII. It is propaganda. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. For a historian, I don't think you can you should go around saying, oh yeah, Henry, Richard III was a pure evil bad guy. But for the popular consciousness, uh, public reimagining of his character, I don't want it. I want him to remain the evil bad guy with the shriveled hand and the and the you know murdering his nephews and and dating, marrying his his niece and all this stuff because it's just so dramatic. It's so interesting. And there's, you know, this was a period of high interesting things. And then Richard's kind of the pinnacle of it. He's the most interesting character in The Wars of the Roses at the end of the day. Uh, even in the in the plays, as we've been reading Henry VI, he's been the most interesting kind of villain in waiting. And the, his play in particular is so good at that, that I think it I think it's worth keeping that myth around. Um, purely for the dramatic effect, purely for the ability to look at it and say, wow, that Richard, he was a great, great bad guy. And I think that's important to have sometimes in, in your histories. I, you know, it's like people who want to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. People who try and say, oh, well, Hitler was an artist and all this. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. Wow. Of but you know, like there, you know, there, you can look at anybody's life in real life and, uh, you know, it takes away from the drama to know that certain aspects of them were exaggerated or, or, uh, added on to. And I, I, I think Richard's far more interesting as an evil bad guy than he is as a king. Even if the, the history doesn't, doesn't prove that out, you think that the literary story yeah. deserves to be elevated to the level of yeah, history that, that, that it is that it is i i think it's good that there are historians who are willing to look at the the real truth and and clarify those mis- misconceptions and myths but in the popular imagination that's what i'm talking about we were talking about you know does he deserve to be rehabilitated in the public eye i don't think so uh, maybe he does deserve it. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll give, give you that. Maybe, maybe you've won this round, but Lindsay, but <laughs> maybe he deserves it, but I, I prefer he didn't have it. So, so I'm, as if I'm understanding this correctly, and you like to look at the grand thrust of history in mm-hmm. literary terms, pure literary terms, and you want characters, yeah. Hannibal and Julius Caesar yeah. and give me your William Wallace. And, yeah. George Washington with the cherry tree. You want all of that yeah. to be. If Mel Gibson's nice... going to play him, I want it. <laughs> so, so it, it it's in your imagination, and I'm not saying that derogatorily, mm-hmm. but you're saying that that history is a literary, um, a literary product. Yeah, sure. I think it can be read that way. I think I think, I think a you lot lose of a people, lot of reality that way, but <laughs> well, but I think a lot of people would agree with you that that um, history is, I mean, the news that we're living through today. You know, we're recording this at the end of September. The impeachment of President Donald Trump is is imminent. Um, <laughs> this is we're I mean, living. You got it no, on recording. Now. I, I do, but I, I mean, we're living through a period that when people were living through Watergate, they were thinking of it as news, but it's become history and there's mm-hmm. a narrative that's mm-hmm. being told. So my concern, I think, is always that the narrative 
is written by the victors, obviously, yeah, and that there's there's points of conflation and um, inflation of certain things that are not necessarily factual. And I I disagree. I think you're right that that there are stories that are being told. We are literary people. We want stories. It makes sense for us to write stories. But when the story is so patently um, made up, yeah. don't you worry that, that we get to a point where, you know, the propaganda takes hold and, and all of a sudden we don't know the truth from fiction? I'm just saying this as a social no. studies teacher, somebody who, who wants to break down and, and, and I hate the, the term unpack, <laughs> but you, you want to get to the, to the truth of things, right? Or as much as you can and acknowledging that there are multiple sides of things. Very true. All true. That's great. You still Give want me the my villains. story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I think you're wrong. I don't know who won this one. I'm I'm, I'm really no, digging I, in my heels here. I, about... You won, definitely, oh, because okay. yours is more about history. Mine's about a story. Okay. And story history probably shouldn't be stories, but I like the story. Well, story is part of his story. So, oh, I mean, hmm. I guess yes. in a sense. But uh, interesting. Okay. Good debate, hun. Yeah. Dear. Yeah, you like it when you win. I've been winning quite a few lately, have haven't been, I? You've been doing well. I'm impressed. Yeah, I should, I should really sandbag it. This is taking too much mental real estate. I, I need to, I need to just dumb it down a bit, maybe. Horse and cow. Thou stole for a wit. I do, do thou sudden witted lord. Thou hast no more brain than a humble so that was that was our look at, at this the history and the the reality of Richard III as we understand it now. Uh, next episode, we're getting into the myth. We're getting into the play itself, the literary myth, yeah, the literary yes, fact, the I literary guess. figure of uh, Richard III. <laughs> so uh, that's that's gonna be our next episode. That play, uh, we haven't decided what film version we're gonna watch. We might we'll, we'll have to decide. There's there's some really great ones through the ages. Oh yeah, well, the Lawrence Olivier is classic, yeah. and then there's the the more modern. Um, uh, Ian McKellen did one. Ian McKellen where it switched the the yeah. setting to yeah. World War II. Yeah, it's a little more. And Nazi-ish. then there's the we're, we are going to be doing the Hollow Crown series, which I yep. think covers the the tetralogy itself. But um, yeah, there's there's been lots of there have been lots of interpretations and adaptations throughout the years. So we'll watch as many as we can and yeah. give you our unvarnished look. So we hope you've enjoyed this uh, myth busting, Mythbusters one hundred and one. <laughs> yes, on the Richard Bix, the myth, myth, Bixters, myth. No, never mind. Forget nope, it. I'm no, done. no, that was not good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll join us uh, next episode for a look at the play Richard the Third. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.